Well, good morning, everybody. The uh, sermon text for this morning is uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. So I'm going to read that for us, and uh, you can follow along uh, together with me in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read uh, from 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang that you would knit us together in you, and we ask that that would be true. And we uh, acknowledge and we want to see the love of Jesus, the work of Jesus for us more clearly. And so we know that after Joseph begged his body from Pilate, after the women saw where he had been buried, all they could do was wait. But your son did not wait. He acted for us. Help us to see this, to feel this more fully. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are this fall in a series of sermons on the essentials of the Christian faith, and we've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide. And uh, some of you might have noticed a couple weeks ago that uh, we skipped over two very, very important phrases in the Creed. Uh, That was both unintentional and completely my fault. So we're going back now this morning, and we're going to fix it. So this morning, we're going to look at the part of the Creed that says that we believe that Jesus descended into hell. Now there are a couple of lines in the creed uh, that can be consistently relied on to raise eyebrows, and I probably don't need to tell you that this is one of them. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons that this phrase uh, stands out to people. First, there is no place in the New Testament where these exact words are used of Jesus. Jesus descended into hell. In fact, it's not uncommon uh, to come across modern versions of the creed that have this line omitted or that change the wording of it to say something else. But the truth is there are several places in Scripture that talk about what happened to Jesus after he died. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus that after he died and before he ascended, Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. And Peter, in his first letter, says that after Jesus suffered, after he died, he went 
and he preached to the spirits in prison. And Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, was quoting one of the Psalms and said, thankfully, Jesus had not been abandoned in Hades. This church is the language of dissent. It is the language of imprisonment. And so the language of the creed is faithful to the witness of Scripture. But I think the other more formidable reason that people find this phrase troublesome is because it sounds so horrific and so unthinkable. Jesus descended into hell. This is the creed's way of saying first and very, very simply that Jesus didn't just appear to die. He actually died. And this is also the creed's way of affirming what death actually is. Jesus really was, the creed says, really was under the horrific and chaotic and destructive grip of death. He tasted all of the obscenity of death. He tasted all of the horrid blasphemy of death. Church, there's no other way to make sense out of the words that Jesus says from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are horrific words. They are unthinkable words for anyone to say for us to hear anyone say. But Jesus said them. And here's what we need to hear this morning. In the strange and beautiful and scandalous way that the gospel always works, those horrific words, those unthinkable words, are what real red-blooded hope sounds like for people like you and me. The older that I get the more of life that slips past me, the more life that slips past the people I love and the people around me, the more that I see people that I care about shrinking into their own mortality, slipping away into it, the more goodbyes that I have to say, the more I need to hear this hopeful good news that Jesus descended into hell. And you need to hear it too. And I know that it's possible. I know standing up here or sitting out there, I know that it's possible that it will not mean that much to you today, right now, here, in this moment. But it certainly will mean something to you one day. And I don't say that to be gloomy. I don't say that to be dramatic. I say that simply because it is true. There is no avoiding death. And in order to most more fully and more deeply grasp why Jesus' descent is hopeful for people like us, we need to understand that death, church, death was not simply this unavoidable stop that Jesus closed his eyes through and held his breath through and crossed his fingers through in order to get to somewhere better. Church, you need to hear this. I need to hear this. We need to hear it again and again. Death was the stop that Jesus intended to make all along. It was his destination. 
Jesus made the descent because he had business to do with death and only one of them was going to come out alive. This is an often overlooked, it is a frequently misunderstood part of our Christian faith and it's desperately important for us to spend some time thinking about it. As the great reformer John Calvin said, Jesus' descent into hell is a great and superior mystery that all of the faithful need to hold. And maybe uh, uncharacteristically for Calvin, if we're not familiar with him, he said the faithful need to feel it too. Jesus' descent means that he has made death itself his victim. Jesus' descent means that Christ is the victor. And that's what this part of 1 Corinthians that we just read together is all about. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most important teachings in the New Testament on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And on the one hand, it could seem a little odd to us. I think it does seem a little odd that it even had to be written. I mean, Paul is writing to teach the Corinthian church that Jesus' death matters, that Jesus' resurrection matters. And some scholars will tell you that Paul had to tell his friends that because the, the Corinthians somehow believed that resurrection didn't matter. Other scholars will tell you that Paul had to tell his friends that because they had somehow gotten to the weird place where they believed that they had already been resurrected. Um, but those reasons, of course, are, are, they sound strange and weird to us, but what is fascinating about it, at least to me, is that one of the earliest churches, one, one of the churches that Paul founded, had to be reminded that death matters and that resurrection matters. I mean, it seems like that should have been settled from the start, pretty important from the start. But we, we are not really that far removed from it either, are we? The truth is, death is not something that many of us think about, at least not regularly. And I know that there are exceptions among us, but just ask yourself, when, when was the last time that you really thought about death? I mean, not, not gallows humor, not just a minute or two before you pushed it aside. When was the last time you really thought about death? Why is it here? What does it mean? It's not a pleasant thing to consider, and so in our highly distractible and highly distracted age, surrounded as we are by miles and miles and miles of things that can insulate us against whatever it is that we don't want to face or think about, we don't usually think about death until we really have to. And then when we do think about it, our thoughts are influenced by all kinds of odd things. I mean, for one thing, our culture, uh, it has an obsession with putting off death. It has an obsession with pretending that, that actual death doesn't really happen. Large swaths of our economy are dedicated to the fantasy of cheating death. You know what I mean. Shaving years off our appearance, adding years to our lives in this fantasy that we don't actually age. And death, actual death, pretty much taboo in our culture. It doesn't sell things. There's not much use for it until someone notable, someone important dies, 
and then you can make some cash off unreleased tracks or footage or ad time. I know that there are notable and thoughtful exceptions to this, but for the most part, the general outline the wider culture hands us about death is pretty clear. But we have to be honest and admit that the church doesn't often do a whole lot better. We say strange things to one another. Things that don't mean anything when we are faced with death. He's in a better place. She's smiling down on you now. Heaven has another angel. Thoughts and prayers. Please understand me. I know. <laughs> I know that we say these things because we often don't know what else to say. And I know that when we say these things, we genuinely love and care for the people that we are saying them to. My point here is not to make us feel guilty about the quality of our grief and our mourning. It is simply to ask, isn't there something more that has to be said? Isn't there something more that can be said about this horrific thing? We might not say with the Corinthian church that death doesn't matter. But I wonder if we act like it. And that's why Paul, you can tell, he's, he's, he's so crazy, so desperate to paint a fuller, more complete, and even more beautiful picture for his friends. And that's why he gives Jesus such a descriptive title. In verse 20, he calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits uh, was the first harvest from a given crop. And when that word first fruits was used in religious settings, it stood in for the rest of the crop. The first fruits represented the whole thing. So I don't know how that hits you, but that's a pretty amazing image to use for Jesus. It is as simple, church, as it is startling. Let it sink in. The risen Jesus represents the dead. He stands as a little taste of the greater harvest of the dead that are coming. He stands at the head and behind him is an entire horde of the dead. <laughs> as far as I know, there are no stained glass windows representing this image. But there should be. Because, as Paul says in verse 22, in Adam, all die. And so in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is a clue. This is a clue why Paul is so desperate for his friends to understand this more completely. Because the Corinthians are messed up if they think that death doesn't really matter. And so Paul goes back to the prime story. The first story that he probably ever told them. The story of Adam, of Eve, of the first parents, of the garden, of beauty. And he reminds them of this world that was created good. This beautiful world that God had made to be the theater of his glory and the place where we find our deepest fulfillment, the place where we can find our deepest communion with God. 
And then he reminds them what the rebellion of their first parents actually did to that beautiful world. And he doesn't beat around the bush at all. He doesn't say, well, you know, their rebellion made things tricky or awkward or sticky or messy. Church, we have to take this straight up. He says the rebellion of Adam brought death. And this is where we need to start. If the truth of Christ the victor is going to mean anything hopeful to us, if we're going to think rightly about Jesus, rightly about what he has done for us, then we have to start by looking death in the face with clear eyes and calling it for what it is. Church, death is not a blip. Death is not something that really doesn't matter that much. Death is not something that we go through in order to get into something better or any of that kind of nonsense. Death is the destruction of God's good world. It is the unmaking of creation. It is the dismantling. It is the deconstruction of everything that God created to be good. Death is a foul ecology. It is a corrosive ecology that makes its way into every part of the world, starting with us. Death is an obscenity. It is a blasphemy. It is an affront to God. And that's what the Christian faith teaches us to be true of death and church. We should never, ever, ever, ever forget that. We should never forget that. When we're grieving. The confusion. The the sadness. The disorientation. The pain. The gnawing desperation when we feel that we feel when we experience the death of someone that we love, all of these things, they are not improper emotions. These are not misplaced feelings. What else should we feel? Because when someone dies, anyone dies, we're looking at the evidence of the unmaking of things that God created to be good and beautiful and right. I don't care if our culture instructs us to move on or it's not that bad. (laughs) I don't care if our culture tells us not to think too much about it. I don't care about how many distractions that are placed in front of us or that we willingly place in front of ourselves. I don't care about how many stupid euphemisms we can make up for death. Our faith teaches us that our Father detests death. He hates it. He did not make any of us for it. We were never, ever, ever supposed to experience it. And so we, as the Father's children, are in good company when we hate it too. And we should never forget this when we comfort those who grieve. It isn't helpful, it isn't true to downplay the extent or the power or the pain of death because it is a breach of God's world. It is a spoiling of the essential goodness of creation. It leaves an unfading wound of loss on whoever it touches.
And so as the Apostle Paul taught us, there is time for us to be quiet and to sit and to mourn with those who mourn. Because as he says it, death is the enemy. Unless something changes, unless someone steps in and does something about that enemy, our lives our, our lives become this rushing to the past. Our, our lives, the meaning of your life, the meaning of my life, just becomes a hurrying to our graves. Unless someone steps in and confronts this enemy, we are rushing to meet our past, as Karl Barth puts it. From dust we have come, and to dust we'll return. And that's that. That Old Testament lesson that Bill read this morning, so beautiful, Psalm 88, it is this beautiful, haunting, troubled picture of a writer who is staring death in the face. It's this incredible existential moment that gets right at the heart of what we're talking about here. This is what he asks God. This is what he sings to God. Is your righteousness known in the darkness? God, tell me, do you work wonders for the dead? Is your steadfast love, is it, is it declared in the grave? He's asking because he doesn't know. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Well, who could declare it in the grave if he did not first happily descend to the grave? Do you work wonders for the dead? Well, who could work wonders for the dead if he did not first gladly descend to the dead? But each in his own order, Paul says, Christ, the first fruits, and then in his coming, those who belong to him. And then, Paul says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And do not be mistaken, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This church is the beautiful, triumphant, haunting meaning of the work of Jesus for people like us. This is a picture of the work of Jesus directed towards anything that would stand in his rightful reign over his good world. This is the work of Jesus directed at death. And there should be no mistake. The New Testament is clear here and everywhere else that it speaks of. The results will always be the same. All enemies will be under his feet. Is your righteousness known in the darkness? <laughs> Do you work wonders for the dead? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Well, church, the death of Jesus is the answer to those questions. The death of Jesus, the righteous, Jesus, the only son. It is God's answer to the perversion of death and the obscenity of death. And we should not be mistaken. The language used is the unashamed language of war. I mean, we sang at the beginning of the service about Jesus coming to us. 
He comes to us in peace with this invitation. We sang about it. It's so beautiful. Jesus comes to people like you and me with that gracious invitation to repent of our sins and be forgiven and be made new. He comes to people like you and me with the promise that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He comes to people like you and me with the offer of rest. We can finally rest. He comes to people like us with this gracious invitation, this promise that if we follow him in repentance and faith, he will make us look like him and love like him. But church, do not be mistaken. To death, he comes riding a white horse. And his name is Faithful and True. To death, he comes with a sword and his eyes burning like a flame of fire. To death he comes with his robe dipped in blood because he has waded through hell to get there. And you can hear his cry. You can hear that cry. Why have you forsaken me? It is still ringing in the foundation of the earth when he approaches death. And he leaves death as Christ victorious. That's how the assault on death takes place. And when it's over, there is no resistance left. He defends us. He makes all of our enemies his enemies. And he defeats them forever. And so that means, as Paul says elsewhere, that it is right for us to grieve. It is right for us to mourn at death, but not as those who have no hope. Paul ends with this picture of Christus Victor, the triumphant Jesus, handing the kingdom over to the Father. It is the inverse of a world that has gone bad and corroded and deconstructed. It is the world that was created to be in order, in peace, in beauty, in goodness. It is a picture of the world restored by the one who would descend even to the grave to make everything new. Church, this is the Jesus that the creed asks us to profess our faith in when we say... He descended into hell. And when we follow him in repentance and faith, we are offered real hope and real comfort and real victory. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would give us a vision, a taste, a hunger, an appetite to see Jesus for who he really is in this light. Christ the victor, powerful, full of might and strength, who defeats our enemies. Help us to see him and cling to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.